welcome to the Anthropology and Technology podcast. I'm Dawn Walter, the founder of the Anthropology and Technology Conference, an annual meeting of minds from the social sciences, business and technology. Our aim? To champion responsible AI and the value that social scientists bring to the design and development of emerging tech. In this podcast series, we're talking with some of the innovative and inspiring people working in this space. Join us to hear their stories, discover their ambitions, and get under the surface of the great work they're doing to ensure emerging tech fulfills its incredible potential without having a detrimental effect on people's lives and society as a whole. We hope you enjoy. My guest today is Gemma John, who is an urban anthropologist and the managing director of Human City. Gemma is speaking in the Smart Cities track at the conference on 9th of October 2020. We met virtually in between sessions at an anthropology conference in July and we talked about Gemma's work on urban projects, speaking for the social and how anthropologists like Gemma can contribute to smart cities. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome Gemma, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm well thanks, thanks for inviting me. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. So you did your PhD in social anthropology at the University of St Andrews and you've said elsewhere that your research into the Freedom of Information Scotland Act 2002 led to an interest in knowledge and transparency and that's informed your work and research since. Can you speak to that in terms of how it's shaped your career trajectory? Mm. Yep so thanks for that question really interesting one and I think it's foundational because I talk to people wanting to move out of the academy into applied research and, and say that they, they need to find a story you know need to find that story around what, why what motivated them to, to move from one space to another and I guess this is my story, which is um, my PhD was in access to information, also freedom of information. And that was all about um, uh, providing you know, citizens with the opportunity to access information held by local authorities in the name of transparency and participation in local government. So really it was about opening up local government to, um, to members of the public who wanted to access information and participate in decision making. And so actually it was, it was the question from my research was around what is knowledge? So once people get hold of the information, how does that translate into to knowledge and, 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 um, and produce this kind of transparency that people anticipate was going to result from this, this legislation? And of course, you know, that, that the, what is knowledge uh, in the context of the knowledge economy is a broader question well beyond that piece of legislation. So broadly speaking, you know, it lent itself to questions around interdisciplinarity, collaboration, you know, how do people share, share make, make new meaning through, through uh, new combinations and through new interactions with each other. Um, Strathern's Commons and Borderlands book is fantastic at addressing some of those issues. How do you make knowledge mobile? You know, how does it get made portable, etc. And of course, all these questions were having a profound impact on practice. You know and how we think about our built environment so a really clear example is the workplace you know and how we work with each other and how we interact with each other at work you know not only just in the academy but beyond the academy and in offices etc and how ideas of knowledge transfer and, and exchanging and knowledge and collaboration and interdisciplinarity or into industry collaborations was, was was a big thing so I moved from academic research um, in that broad context of knowledge economy into applied research, uh, more specifically workplace um, change, but, but that thing later on in, in, in other areas of work focusing on spatial transformation in the context of the knowledge economy. Um, so your consultancy Human City helps people to take a successful and socially responsible approach to property investing and development. Can you tell us more about that and who you typically work with? Mm. 
You said, is it rich, it rich developers or cash-strapped councils or both? And I have to say probably a bit of both. Um, so we, we direct our services at Human City towards asset managers. And so those are the um, companies responsible for using and, and managing a, a property as an asset um, in order to generate a certain level of income uh, for investors and, and themselves and investors. Um, so direct services are to asset management companies but we also direct our services to local authorities who seek to work with asset management companies and development teams to maximize the value for local communities and residents. So one way of thinking about the way in which an asset management company can operate or manage rather their asset is in the interests of local communities. Um, and so actually in so doing, they both bring returns to their business and to their investor clients, but also to society itself. And so that's where we work, you know, Human City is at the intersection between public, public and private sector interests um, through a variety of methods, mostly focused on something called social value, which was a piece of legislation introduced in 2013 that meant in the context of planning that companies had to demonstrate that, that, that social value, that return to society. But there were also new other concepts such, such as shared value, you know, how do you think in a, in a way that where business and, um, and society's interests are kind of aligned and, and there are many movements around those kinds of um, uh, ambitions and, and businesses moving in that direction. And more recently, um, there's, a, there's been a shift in the investor community towards much more, uh, much more so than historically around impact investing. Um, and so how do you, as investors, how do you invest in a, a more impactful way around uh, environmental, social and governance of its criteria and factors. So in the round, in the context of planning, shared value and uh, ESG investing, that's where societal impact is really becoming uh, increasingly important. So um, as an anthropologist, you've said you're fascinated by the changing ways in which people live and work in cities. Designing new city spaces that put people first can deliver outstanding financial and social value. You touched on that just briefly there, but thinking about some of the urban projects you've worked on over the years, can you share some success stories where people, where putting people first has achieved financial and social value? Mm, yeah, so I've just mentioned in the round, I guess, you know, what the general approach is, but retail, take retail at the moment, you know, as an example where, where technology, uh, but other factors are having a disruptive impact on uh, the retail sector. And, and actually in light of COVID, many retail assets have halved in value, you know, so whether they're, they're owned by local councils or whether they're privately owned, they actually are worth half the amount. So imagine your house drops in value by half, you know, it's equivalently what's happening in the retail sector. So um, in that context, you know, it's a prime example of, of how social value can help, um, you know, help companies reimagine the, 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 the what a retail space might, might be in the context of, you know, what, it, what is it to that business, but also what, what does it deliver to local society. So, you know, in order to understand how um, retail can be maybe structured, reconfigured differently um, in order to answer kind of questions around social, you know, social questions and, and res respond to that social context, we need to know what's going on in that local area. We need to understand what that, that local context and dynamic is and how that asset sits within the local community and what value it might bring to that, that local group. Um, and so that involves working with local institutions and groups to help to help asset owners deliver a service in the context of that retail space that is of value to, um, to that, that local group. Um, and so to give you a, a, a concrete example, we worked in a small town called Chesterfield, where there was um, the particular local need, young people were living in the town, uh, left the town as soon as they could, you know, so you know, age of 17 or 18 would move out. 
and so there was a need to really um, offer something to local um, young people particularly um, to support professional and personal development in the town and so your retail space was a perfect place where you could help young people connect to SMEs to, to and SMEs connect to local talent um, and that retail space was really kind of turned into a space for networking and connecting and entrepreneurship um, so yeah so so retail being a really great example where so, uh, social and financial value kind of are, are paired together in the context of I guess you know crisis nice and, and really topical given given what's going on at the moment the pandemic so you touched on interdis interdisciplinarity um, a little bit earlier on and the conference uh, emphasizes the important importance of dis interdisciplinarity from your own experience of working at mm -hmm. ACOM and fostering partners and now with your own consultancy what are your thoughts on working with people from different disciplines to achieve positive impact on projects mm, another great question um and look now is our time i guess you know because increasingly so the design profession itself so the built environment is seeing itself as more interdisciplinary um so there's um, opportunity for people from various disciplines and backgrounds to work in the context of design um, and I was at Foston Partners and there was interesting, at the time I was there, interested in creating a, a research team that consisted of anthropologists, you know, social scientists, um, sociologists, uh, neuroscientists, philosophers, etc. Um, because there's an appreciation that design requires multiple viewpoints, multiple perspectives in order to problem solve, but also a great awareness of the impact of technology and technological change on the design profession moving forward. So actually, if, if, if the design profession is going to reinvent itself, it has to be much more adaptable and, and interdisciplinary as a profession. So there's a, that kind of, I guess, uh, opening um, coming, kind of emerging in the context of design. Um, but as an anthropologist, it's not always easy. You know, interdisciplinarity is, is hard work. Uh, we all know that. Um, and, you know, you're working with people in the context of the built environment who are building centred, you know, so they're thinking about impact in a kind of building centred way. So they might think about the impact of building and an environment has on people. Um, and uh, so rather than thinking about uh, people as themselves having culture and, and kind of undergoing and, and experiencing social transformation, they, they're very much thinking about the impact of, of, of an environment on people itself. So as a, as a, a social scientist and anthropologist, what we try and do is kind of separate those two concerns. You know, think about people, think about you know, what's going on, and cultural and societal change, and then, then pull that understanding back into the building rather than thinking quite literally as a, a building and people as a kind of cause and effect uh, relationship. That's quite a nice analogy there, I think, about um... Put, instead of putting buildings but buildings first and also tech first we need to put the people first so when we're building tech or when we're building buildings we need to always put people first rather than later yeah otherwise you're thinking about the building and environment in terms of you know temperature quality you know temperature and, and uh, air quality rather than actually fundamentally thinking about what it means to be human and therefore what spaces we should be designing yeah exactly so uh, back to the pandemic a little bit. So the pandemic has affected where we work and most of us now um, are working from home, sometimes in difficult and cramped conditions. But the rising cost of housing together with the lack of, lack of affordable housing means we need new solutions fairly quickly. What, what are your thoughts around this? Absolutely, we um, definitely need for new solutions. Um, and this has been going on for some time. We all know there's kind of a fundamental crisis in, in housing and lack of housing and, and fun fundamentally new houses just need to be built you know it's not enough um housing for people 
but the main problem is you're going around in circles around this issue of, of, of land value and, and, and the cost of development actually so you know the reason why housing is not so-called affordable at the moment is is because the cost of land and the cost of development um, itself means property prices remain high so the public private and private and private sector kind of back this issue back and forth you know the, pri the public sector will say it's up to the private sector kind of you know take the hit and, and, and not maybe reduce profit that they, they might otherwise foresee getting um, and yet there's also a, a, an expectation on the public sector to, to subsidize you know to actually kind of uh, make up that difference and so it goes back and forth um, but local authorities themselves are now becoming developers they're kind of um, voting with their, their feet and, and, and really being much more active in saying look you know we can use our resources and, and assets to deliver affordable solutions um, and there are some great examples of, of that going on Meridian Water for example in Enfield a huge number of houses being built there and you know that they, they are themselves um you know there are ridiculous numbers where, where there's a, something like 25 percent more housing needs to be built in london over the next you know by 2029 something you know something kind of incredibly ambitious but meridian water is a really good example of where housing is being built um but of course in subsidizing housing and providing affordable solutions public sector is also cash strapped so you know what you know how how are they able to kind of balance their own books in in the context of you know the kind of services that they provide um and so there's lots of kind of discussions around what the value is to them as a, a council what kind of money they get back from that kind of offer um and there needs to be thinking around that systemic equation between housing employment and health and actually providing housing you're you're kind of making cost savings in other areas so actually you know more affordable housing means happier people healthy people etc um and so there's that, that that equation that needs to be kind of made more explicit in order to justify the the money spent on affordable housing and on the private sector side there's obviously you know moves towards um you know alternative residential like co-living co-housing and so forth so you know there's lots of discussion and lots of moves on both sides and uh, more work that needs to be done to resolve that problem I think to me what I took from that is particularly around the sort of the holistic view that we need to take so if we're going to spend money in housing we need to develop good housing so then we have healthy people and then there's not those kind of costs you know that then the health service doesn't take the cost later on down which is what you were effectively saying yeah because even the, yeah even if the local authority becomes a developer it still needs to be that they themselves acting as a business so they have to be able to see some return from that or at least be able to balance their books and so the, there's a lot of work and I mean essentially this is what social something called social return on investment does um, where it kind of creates an equation around you know what what are the other benefits from good housing employment opportunities um, you know you're likely to get healthier people happier people uh, more prosperous people and, and actually overall it's a good investment absolutely I think holistic is what anthropologists bring particularly isn't it to to problems who have mm. a, a really holistic perspective which I think is really valuable it's called systems thinking, really systemic mm. thinking when you think all of those connections and, and you know, having to map them out and make, and make them very obvious. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you've said that the time is right for anthropologists to speak for the social. For our non-anthropologist listeners, can you explain what speaking for the social means in practice and why it is important? Mm. So I guess um, it goes back to the increased need to incorporate the views of society in decision making. Um, and so we've seen that in the built environment in relation to public consultation and how in developments um, there's a need to get feedback from members of the public, particularly in a local area, um, around the impact of that development on that specific group of people um, and incorporate their views into kind of further uh, iterations of that development. And, and it's quite often required in the context of planning and planning permission 
to, you know, that the developer has has made uh, made the moves to consult members of the public. Uh, anthropologists, you know, obviously support that kind of engagement, absolutely. But um, we challenge, <laughs> we challenge the idea that society is this new category, you know, that you can consult, you know, that it's a fixed kind of um, uh, entity. And so, speaking for the social is both speaking and, and being in a position to represent so-called society, but actually challenging it that it's a neat fixed entity and that it's much more plural. Um, and unpacking and exploring that plurality and the multitude, multitude of ways in which the society gets formed and reformed, almost a kind of as a as a relation, as a kind of relationship. Um, and so, speaking for social is really about what kind of societies, what kind of socials come into view in the context of practice, um, particularly when you're collaborating, you know, with other um, experts on projects. Fascinating. And you're working on a book with Hannah Knox, I understand. Yep, so uh, an edited volume, which is, a, I guess, a legacy project from our time at the Centre for Research on Social Cultural Change, um, which um, it was, you know, it was a, a centre that, um, that, that it, it formally kind of closed down about 2014, but the conversations are still ongoing. So Hannah and I are working on this edited volume, which consists of contributions from people in practice across different disciplines, so architects, for example, as well as you know, people in housing policy, as well as academics, and bringing them together to really interrogate this idea of what do we mean by the social, what kind of socials come into view, what kind of ideas come to the fore when methodologically when we're engaged in um, projects around kind of technical change. Sounds fascinating. I look forward to that. For the Smart City stream at the conference, one of the questions posed is how do we achieve social change with technology without overvaluing technology? How can anthropologists contribute smart cities and the built environment, even those who don't specialise in smart cities? Mm, great. So almost two questions here. So I kind of took two questions from this, which is, you know, how do you not overvalue technology? Um, so I'm going to take that first, which is, um, I guess, the way anthropologists have seen technology uh, is, is, is an enabler. Um, so actually, you know, it, technology kind of amplifies and extends many ambitions and objectives that are already there in what it means to be human. Technology is, 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 is kind of escalates and, and enables those to be um, realized. So in itself, you know, our, our ambitions are still there. Um, so take the NHS, for example, it's a technology that allows us to provide, you know, a healthcare system and it goes and it allows um, the NHS allows us to extend our own capacities, you know, and what it means to be human, and we can extend our own capacities, but our ambitions around what we want to achieve are still still there. Um, and so it's often this idea of you know technology and, and, and human needs are quite often kind of com combined or kind of explained in the idea of the cyborg, you know, so you're kind of half human, half technology, that actually the NHS allows us to kind of go well beyond what we're physically able to do as, as humans. And so, you know, I guess, you know, overvaluing technologies, it, it, technology extends our capacities um, and extends our ability to be human. It doesn't replace that humanity, it doesn't replace what it is to be human. So I'd answer it in that way. And then talking about um, contribute to smart, contribution to smart cities. Um, yeah, and again, it's just an appreciation of how human and non-humans, you know, human forms and kind of infrastructure coexist and are mutually constituting. Um, and, and in the context of smart cities, that's about data and how we use data and how data shapes us, but how we're using data to, I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> to create, <laughs> you know, that, 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 that in using data, you know, data 
gives us particular social cultural forms, you know, in a sense we're using data, but data is also shaping us in our, our use of it. Um, Technology interrupting there, I love it. We, we just had Siri, and Siri just had a nice little chat with us. <laughs> Fantastic, thanks Gemma. So lastly, where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, check out my website, so there's Human City website, um, www.humancity.co.uk. Um, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, so just Google me and I'll come up and or email me directly, Gemma at humancity.co.uk. So just before we go, can we return to the conference? For, so for those who don't know yet, can you tell us what you'll be covering in your talk? Yes. Um, so I think I've decided in the context of, um, I guess, smart cities is, is to kind of focus on specific examples where tech has disrupted the value of, of a physical space. So, you know, take libraries, take your work space, take retail, for example, you know, tech is really, you know, digital technology, the ability to do stuff at a distance from a physical space is really called into question the value of that physical space. Um, and actually technology is, is, is still very much part of the creation of that space. So I would, um, I'd be talking about actually how technology and um, technological platforms and online engagement actually um, is, is seamlessly interwoven into the design of physical spaces rather than just an add-on, actually how the two kind of come together and, and kind of are co-created in the context of, of real projects um, as a way of, of, of then thinking about smart cities in general. Your talk sounds really interesting, Gemma. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you. Um, what are you most looking forward to about the Anthropology and Technology Conference? Are there any speakers that you're particularly excited to hear from? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, I'm obviously interested in listening to all the speakers, um, but I'm particularly interested to see how the, the, the conference itself begins to address some of the challenges and opportunities we've seen under lockdown, you know, working at a physical distance in the context of technology and what technology enables us to do, and maybe some of the, the limits of, of that technology, and also the impact it's had on our research and work in general. Um, and none of us really know how to resolve that, but it's a key question in the context of the built environment, is actually how seriously should we take this ability to work at a distance, and, and, and to what extent does that begin to throw much more light on the need in local neighbourhoods for investment and um, amenity. So thanks again Gemma, it's been fantastic to talk to you today, and we're really looking forward to your talk at the conference. Pleasure, thanks so much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Anthropology and Technology Conference podcast. Our guest today was Dr Gemma John, urban anthropologist and managing director of Human City. There are more conversations in this podcast series, so subscribe in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the conference, go to anthtechconf.co.uk, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Until next time, I hope you have a lovely day.